Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Helen Thompson and I are in London today, and we're delighted to be talking to Esther Duflo, who is, as I'm sure many people know, the youngest person ever to win the Nobel Prize for Economics, the second woman to win it, and she's also the author, with her fellow laureate, Abjit Banerjee, of the new book, Good Economics for Hard Times, which is about how to do economics better, but it's also in a pretty profound way about politics as well. And then we're going to talk about the connection between the two. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Can we start with something that you cite in the book as a kind of soft mantra of conventional economics, which is invest in people, not places. Can you just tell us a bit about why economists believe that and why they're wrong? Because quite a lot of your argument is about how that misses a lot of the human condition out. And yet it does seem to be quite a powerful conventional wisdom. Yes, so the idea is that um, you wouldn't want to do, for example, what's called place-based policy, so putting a lot of investment in one particular area. So policymakers are often tempted to do that, that there is a distressed area, let's put some money into it, keep money into it. For example, social security offices moved from London to Newcastle. That's a form of place-based policy. It's quite popular with policymakers. Many economists don't like them because they're thinking, well, you know, if you're putting the money in one place... Maybe that's going to help this one place, but it's at the expense of some other place where you could have put the money instead or where people would have chosen to come. So what we should really target any help on is individual people, not the place where they live. And the underlying assumption is that people will move. I mean, that that seems to be a big basis of quite a lot of conventional economic thinking that, as it were, if you build it, they will come, that the people will move. And you use the phrase which a lot of people will know that comes up in economics about stickiness. And people are sticky too, right? They're, they often don't move. Yes, yeah, so the, this kind of reluctance for place-based policy is just one manifestation of this very deep belief that economists have that people will be sensitive to financial incentives and in particular if opportunities disappear where they are, but there are more opportunities elsewhere, they will move. Likewise, if the sectors where they used to be working vanishes, there is no shipbuilding anymore, then people will move and do something else instead. But in fact, all of the research shows that people are remarkably sticky. Everything is sticky, but people in particular, they're just stuck in place. There are many reasons for that, and it has huge implications. So just to give you an idea of how immobile people are, that's an example from the U.S., In the 1950s, in 1948 specifically, 7% of people used to move from one county to another, which is not that big, every year. And in the 2000s, it has moved to something closer to 4%. So it's about a halving of the mobility, inter-county mobility, uh, every year. So people have become much less mobile. Yes. Which is extraordinary. And it's particularly shocking in a sense because it comes on the heels of what should have been an upheaval that would have led people 
to move. The big decline in mobility started in the 90s, which also when the big competition with China, which was the source of a lot of disruption in in the economic lives of many towns and counties in the US, started. I think that's really interesting because we're talking here, aren't we, about internal mobility within the United States. But if you look in international mobility or you look at mobility within Europe, I'm pretty sure it's going to, you're going to find that it increased across states at some point in the 2000s because it was the, the consequences of freedom of movement and turning it into a citizen's right within the European Union. And then the implications of having significantly poorer countries come in when Eastern European countries started to come in in 2004 meant that within the EU, from about the time when you're saying that internal mobility within the US is really rapidly falling, that it's actually increasing within the European Union, or at least from parts of the European Union to other parts of the European Union. So in the European Union, the, the, the barriers were removed that were there before, but people are still surprisingly immobile within the European Union. They are even surprisingly mobile within country. For example, when Spain was hit by an economic crisis, it wasn't unequally affecting different regions and people weren't moving from one to the other. When there was the Greek crisis, which was unprecedented, with people really ending up with nothing or next to nothing, the Greek state put. It's really remarkable the extent to which, even faced with really, really high cost and with a complete freedom to move to another place, people move fairly little. And is that partly, I genuinely don't know the answer to this, to do with ageing societies, because there is a story that was told about Greece that there was relatively significant migration among the young early on in the crisis. But Greece is one of the oldest societies on earth. The median age is, I think, 46 or 47. A country where half of people are over 47, almost by definition, those people are not going to move. Has that got something to do with it? I think it has got something to do with it, that mobility is easier at younger ages. But it would be interesting. I haven't seen the statistic broken down by age. I think we would still see young people stick. Young too. people stick too, despite the, what would seem to be a tremendous uh, divergence in opportunities, even within countries. There is a very nice study from Iceland that looked at a volcano that um, exploded. That didn't kill anybody because it was kind of forecasted and so people could be taken to safety, but it destroyed many houses in a fishing island. And anybody whose house got destroyed got money that they could use to rebuild the house or that they could use to to move. And people were more likely to move if they got that money with their destroyed house than if their house were still there, about 25 percentage point difference in the moving. It being Iceland, people are you know, there is very good data linking generations with each other. So when you look at the children of the people who were forced to move by the explosion of volcano, they are doing much better in life than the children who stayed. And they were completely comparable to start with. It depends whether you got a lava bomb on your house or not. But the families who moved, the children are more likely to go to college. As a result, they have better job, etc., etc. So even within country and within a country like Iceland, that's really not very big, people aren't able or willing to put whatever it is they have to start something else elsewhere. And is the danger of that story that it would confirm some economists in their view that people should move and we just got to get the incentives better? There is that question, why do people stick? Um, it's, a, you know, it's a question about human psychology, not just about incentives, but if the evidence is that moving 
in this case, helps in the long run. Why do people stick? So there are a combination of factors. In the US, one very strong factor is real estate, which is that even though the, the wages are much higher on the coasts where the jobs are, housing is also much, much more expensive. The other is that when there is a big shock that doesn't apply to volcano to the volcano, but that applies to, say, a factory town being wiped out by competition with China, for example, everyone is hit at the same time, and that uh, creates a real estate crisis. The price of houses go down, and people are often under on their mortgage. It's kind of very difficult for them to move because they would have to sell a house and owe more than they have and declare bankruptcy, etc., but in addition from these purely kind of economic factors, there are different factors, which is people are not driven only or maybe primarily by financial incentive. They are looking to their professional career as a source of fulfillment and a place in life. And so when you take someone who has had a career as a fisherman in Iceland or as a furniture maker in in a town in the US or similarly for a town in the UK. The idea of picking up and starting from scratch is totally unappealing, especially if it's going to be in a place where they don't know anybody, in a sector that is new, they were furniture maker, maybe a foreman, they had some, and then now they're selling the furniture on the shop floor, that's different. And they also lose the, the place that they might have in their community. We know people need social relationships, in the community where they have been, they have them, they've established them for many years, they have a certain position in society. And uh, abandoning all of that and moving to a new place is extremely difficult. So I don't think we should just say people should move and why don't they get around to do it? It would be good for their kid. I think we should say, well, if people aren't doing it, despite those gains, it must really be that there are really strong barriers for them to be able to do it. I wonder it. as well, I mean, this is a bit speculative. I wonder whether part of it is is because if you look at the contrast with the past in terms of internal migration within a country like the United States or indeed within Britain, perhaps, whether it isn't because they have political expectations that actually there will be investment in places, that they will vote for a party that will promise them. So they actually invest some political hope in the possibility that the economic circumstances of the place which they are actually will change. There might be some of that, but that would be wishful thinking. <laughs> it may be, but it doesn't... The, but it, but it could explain, the, so for instance, because I've just been thinking as you were talking, there's a lot of internal migration in Britain in the 1930s, particularly away from like the North East, say, and where you've got extremely high unemployment that goes all the way through the decade. Now, if you were sitting in the northeast in the 1930s, you probably don't have high expectations that there's going to be a government in London that's going to be responsive. But once we get to after the war and you've had some experience of Labour government, then you might start to expect that a government can be elected that will be responsive to your economic circumstances. It is possible that to some extent people cling to some form of hope. And in fact, there is a populist rhetoric that tries to build on that. So the discourse of, of Trump, for example that's anti-trade, is very much about, you know, your town is going to go back. Like, the Make American Great Again idea is very powerful because it gives people the hope that they can be going back to what they had, which is appealing. The reality is that, in the U.S. anyways, the way that these people who have suffered this disruption have been treated is terrible. 
really terrible. When you look at the, the counties that have suffered the most from international trade, for example, the most affected county people lose hundreds of dollars in income on average, just from the factory closing and the fact that wages go down, so people consume less. Therefore, even the people who were just you know serving coffee don't have anybody to, who can afford the coffee, etc. So there is kind of a implosion of the economic activity in the place because people don't move, which leads to hundreds of dollars of average income being lost. In front of that, they're getting you know fifty dollars in assistance, and of those fifty dollars, most of this is disability. There has been no effort to help people recover, now in the form of investment in the places, now in the form of investment in the people in our training. There is actually a program called the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program that is supposed to help people to do that. It's actually been proven to be quite effective, but it's ridiculous how tiny it is. Of this $50 in assistance, something like half a dollar is in the form of trade adjustment. Yeah, you, you describe it in the book. And it's as you're laying it out, you think this is a good idea. And then you get to the payoff, which is, well, it would be a good idea, but you actually have to spend some money on yes. it. Yes. In part, I think this is the product of your first leading question, which is, is it people, not places? Economists and policymakers have been very, very reluctant of picking individual winners and losers. So the trade adjustment assistance program requires to adjudicate that a particular farm got wiped out because of trade. So it's really, you have to say, you're eligible, you're not eligible. And somehow, policymakers had to do that because that opened the door for corruption. But the truth is that it is the case that some people are individually hurt. And so we need to find a way of doing this more effectively. Also, the implication of the disability, you know, it, it is an astonishing fact about the United States, the extent to which welfare has turned into disability benefits. But that disability is a classic assumption that it's people, not places. It's yes, the, it's exactly. The, it's the individual. It's the individual. And it's, you, you don't talk about uh, and it's a universal. town being disabled. And it's universal. So the disability program is a program that anybody is eligible for, you don't need to have lost your job because of trade. So it doesn't require this determination based on economic circumstances or the place you are in. But disability is a really disastrous form of providing assistance to people. First of all, because if you're not quite disabled, but that's the only way you're going to survive, you're going to have to overcome any number of hoops to show that you're disabled you're going to feel like a terrible human being because everybody is telling you that you're basically a, a sponge and a leech who is taking advantage of the system. And then I do think that people internalize the fact that they really are disabled. There is a very nice paper from David Otter looking at veterans. And at some point, Agent Orange, that some veterans were exposed to in Vietnam, was recognized as a potential source of disability. So a lot of people suddenly became eligible for disability benefits because they had been exposed to Agent Orange or possibly exposed to Agent Orange. And so there was a big increase in disability among those people. And then they stopped working and never got out of disability. So disability has also a causal effect in how people see themselves. It's not in a good light. So I think for people who, who lost their job and felt proud of the career they had, that's really adding insult to injury. I think people are increasingly aware that democratic politics in, in the West, in this country, in the United States, in France, 
is divided by place now. So we, we talk about the big democratic divisions that maybe used to be class. And now sometimes it's crudely rural urban, but actually it's more complicated than that. It's town versus city and it's regions versus the metropolis and so on. You touch on this in the book. Is some of that a consequence of the fact that people are sticky, but economics has treated them as though they're not, that it exacerbates those divisions? Yes, and the class and place categories have kind of merged because the people who can afford to live in the big cities, they are, by construction, reasonably well off. And the people who cannot and who live in remote regions in France, for example, they feel like the preferences of people who live in Paris who are insanely better off compared to them are detecting what they can do. So this was, for example, at the root of the Yellow Vest movement in France, where it's really got sparked by the carbon tax and a possible hike in the price of gasoline. And even though the government retreated almost immediately on that, I think it kind of gelled the idea that, oh, the people in Paris are indulging their political likes and dislikes on the back of us. And I think that is also, isn't it, that the big cities, I mean, I do think the the class composition of big cities is quite complicated because there usually is a lot of poverty in these big cities as well. But that the big cities generally have much better transport infrastructure than the places outside. So if you say that you're moving towards a a greener politics that is perceived as being anti-cars, that has a completely different sense if you're in rural France than it does if you're talking about being able to get around Paris. Also, another thing that has happened is that politics used to be more or less organised down class with uh, unified uh, migrant, uh, black people uh, and less uh, workers, basically working class. And the kind of traditional left-wing parties, that's the Socialist Party in France, the Labour here, the Democrats in the US, have become more of the party of the educated. Mm. And as a result, in part, or maybe in parallel, a party of liberal ideas, tolerance, diversity. So the the poor white working class felt that there is nothing in those parties for them anymore, living as a base for the left-wing parties, the minorities and the highly educated, both of which are much more likely to live in cities. When I was reading the section on economic growth, and you talk about, I think it's Roma's argument about to get growth going and productivity growing again, we need these kind of hubs that attract all the talent, all the knowledge, particularly around education. So you spend some of your time in MIT. We're both based in Cambridge, both classic examples of these kinds of hubs. And I don't know how you feel sitting in MIT, but I sometimes feel in Cambridge, this is crazy. Like, how much talent and knowledge does one place need? Uh, If we're going to keep attracting it, what's going to happen to all the places where the people have come from? And yet there is that sense. There was a famous interview that Malcolm Gladwell did with the head of Stanford, where he said, how much is enough for Stanford? And the head of Stanford said, there's never enough. Like, we, we, we always need more. Do you ever get that sense sitting in MIT that this is crazy? I think that's the problem of uh, university presidents. Their job is to make it more. So, of course, the president of Stanford would say never enough. Uh, that's his job. And he's strongly incentivized. And he's strongly incentivized, you know, not just in money, which probably he doesn't need, but in 
status, uh, yeah. status and reputational prestige, yeah. etc. And the same certainly holds for MIT. The thing is there, you take the president of Stanford or the president of MIT, they have a relatively easy job doing that because it is the case that it's easier to attract funding and to get good ideas when you already have a lot of people around. So people will tend to be attracted by these universities and then around the university towns develop a kind of an ecosystem of uh, startups or companies that have started in the form. MIT has invested for decades into real estate all around the campus that they do lead to startups that emerge in the campus. And now, a few years ago, they've started something called the Engine, which is like kind of a, a hub for very, very young startups working on tough problems, which both has financing and money. And all of that is fairly easy to do. I don't want to say it's trivial, but it's kind of a natural thing to do. And people are willing to put up, say, in the valley, people are willing to put up with, like, horrible traffic and uh, fires and uh, extremely expensive real estate so they can only get this mini, mini house in order to be to be there. And it's kind of hard to start something new, precisely because people will tend to want to be in the same place. And the author of Hillbilly Elegy tried to, to lead a tour where they would you know, go to the comeback city and try and start the new places there. But highly educated people want to go where other highly educated people are and the capital follows them. So there is a very natural force of aggregation that uh, Enrico Moriti talks about in his, in his book. The issue <laughs> that we are faced as then in policy is like, what about everybody else? Because... Again, if all of the highly educated people live together in one city, in particular in university towns, which tend to be restricted on the real estate due to other reasons, for example, in Boston, it's a historical city. You cannot build like huge skyscrapers. Trust me, Cambridge is the same. Cambridge, England is the same. Cambridge, England is the same. So there is a limit to how many people can come and how much they pay, and that contributes to the fact that it becomes impossibly expensive for anybody to come and work for these guys. So, so what can we do? I mean, you, you do talk in the book about some of the things. You, you can reorient policy to a certain extent to take seriously the thought that it's not just where the talented people end up, it's what happens to the places they left behind. Exactly. So I do think that there is a bit of a movement to rethink whether one could do place-based policy. And it's true that it might come at the expense of some more growth in Stanford. Well, seems fine. It, <laughs> at some level, we shouldn't particularly care as a society, how well Stanford is doing. I'm sure Stanford would disagree because they would say, well, but we have to you know, invent the cure for cancer and that's going to benefit everybody. But the, the social tensions are such now that uh, I don't think we can quite afford putting all of the resources in so few places. So that would give kind of some impetus for the place-based policy or for helping people. I think there are two ways or even three ways you can think about this transition being difficult. The first one is how as a society we can prepare better for transitions. And that probably starts at birth, which is with an excellent preschool education, followed by an excellent primary school education, followed by very good opportunity for college, which are independent of income. And today it is the opposite is true. From birth, your educational opportunities are better if you are 
from a richer family. There is a very, very, very strong correlation in the U.S. between how rich your family is and the quality of the college you go to. And the Stanford and the MIT of this world denies this. They say we are making such an effort to be need blind and all that. But on balance, when everything is taken into account, there's a huge relationship between that. So people who start with less chances in life because they have less money also are less prepared to take up any of the challenges that come their way. So that's one. Kind of prepare people for any transition, whatever what, what might come behind, make them resilient. The second is... When a shock happens, help people manage the shocks and the transition. So that's going back to the idea of expanding things like the trade adjustment assistance program, the type of things that Denmark does, actually, in a large way. You know, in the book, we talk about refashioning the trade adjustment program after the GI Bill. And I do think there is rhetorical value to doing that as well, in the sense that people should feel that we are grateful that they took the hit for the rest of us. And the third one is realizing that there are some people who won't move and you need to make their life honorable, manageable and pleasant where they are. And that means, in a sense, preserving the environment, even if it happens to be a small town. People are always criticizing the European uh, agricultural uh, support system. But one thing it has done, especially after it got changed to encourage farmers to adopt sustainable farming practices and organic and all that, instead of producing a lot of quantity, one thing it has done is to preserve the environment, the physical environment, such that France is a nice country to look at, and so is England. And the U.S. is not, because their agriculture is like intensified and has huge fields and it's ugly to see. And similarly, think about the small town as a part of the environment. Preserving this environment is something that we should just take as something we need to do and we need to find a way to do it. Sometimes it might involve subsidizing people to stay in place in their job such that even industry which are eventually going to be phased out are phased out very, very slowly, allowing the older people, the older workers, those who are not going to be retrained to finish their career in a, in a dignified way. Yeah, I just wonder how you see the politics on the on the education side of it because you could hear what you were saying as saying okay we try and get more and more people to have more educational opportunities and be in a position to take advantage of those educational opportunities and then they leave and then the ones who either don't get as good educational opportunities or don't benefit from them in the same quite the same way they stay behind that doesn't seem to me a, a very sustainable kind of politics either and you could say some version of that is what happened in Britain from the late 90s because Britain was a country that went from having comparatively relatively few young people going to university to having a, a, a target at least, although I don't think it's been quite realised, of around 50% of young people going to um, university. And you could say that what's happened is, is that Britain is a, during the same period has had a politics that's become more and more divisive and is displaying quite a number of the problems that you were describing earlier. I would think it's unlikely. I would think that the, the great advantage of education is that it would make people adaptable. I think a lot of people would like to stay home. They always, you know, people, as we said, people prefer to stay home. And in particular, if there was very good educational opportunity locally, people would take them. The problem is their universities locally are not necessarily as good as the ones that are far away. 
But people in Europe, particularly in, in US, it's different. A lot of people move for college, but in Europe, a lot of people would prefer to study close to home. And then some will go, some will stay, but they will at least be equipped to deal with whatever comes their way. And they will also be equipped to understand better the politics, the policy making, etc. So I strongly doubt that education is a force of... Uh, disruption in the, in the way you're describing it. What is clear to me is that the current status quo we have now, even in Europe where university is fairly cheap just because of what funnels into it and the way that meritocracy has been transformed into some kind of just a way of recycling the money you only have in the form of admission to better universities, I think that system is deeply, deeply unfair. And in part, that's a matter of budget choices that have been made. There is just not enough money that's gone to education. You know, Europe decided to go for, like, budget austerity, etc. The one thing that immediately got slashed was education. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your book is full of things, persuasive things we could do to make our lives better and how we pay for them. And you talk a, a lot about one of the ways, I don't know whether, I'm not, I don't want to call it orthodox economics, but kind of con conventional wisdoms that seem to have filtered out from orthodox economics over the last generation have partly helped to delegitimize government and taxation as the engine of social progress. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking about this line that people have in creative writing classes, you know, this phrase, show, don't tell, that the way to write, don't tell people, show them. And there's a real political question with this. If you want to counter the prevailing narrative, which is government makes the problem worse as a Ronald Reagan thing or you know, taxation is inefficient, you could tell them or you could show them. Now, I sense you're a show, not tell. I mean, there, you know, there is a politics which is about countering the narrative. Is your assumption that actually what you have to do is just at a relatively small level, just do more and more things that persuade people that it's not a waste of money? I mean, it's slower, but is that what you're basically, are you? Yes, no, that's a great, that's a great way to put it. I, I don't think tell is going to work out. Uh, but there's a lot of telling going on in politics. But it's not very effective. I don't no. think it's very persuasive. And in particular, the telling by economists is terribly <laughs> unpersuasive. <laughs> so people don't tend to agree with economists. They don't trust us. They, they and there, are, is a, there is a slight tendency to tell as well in the profession. There, there is a very strong tendency <laughs> to tell in the profession. I think some people can tell and make bold statements. But in the meantime, we also need to think about what can we show. So currently, at least in the U.S., I don't know whether that's the same in the U.K., but at least in the U.S., there seems to be a consensus that taxing the super, super rich is okay. Assuming the, a Democrat wins the election, it is actually, I think, off the thing they propose is the one thing that might be happening. Maybe not the wealth tax, but certainly a raise in the income tax at very, very high bracket seems feasible because... 
I think most economists have finally realized that it's not going to lead to economic doom. Some will necessarily object, but I think a lot of people now see that there is no evidence that the very high taxes on the on the rich lead them to stop working. And the public is actually quite in favor because the, the idea of inequality is so much more present and people feel it's unfair. So we can have uh, some form of bipartisan consensus to raise the top tax rates, at least in the public, maybe not in the Congress, but enough to get it done. That's not going to raise that much money because once you start taxing the very high income at a very high rate, companies are going to stop paying those high wages because what's the point of paying your manager to pay the government? But it's going to generate some money. And I think with that money, you need to kind of make a big show of using it in a way that is both really targeted towards those who suffered from the various disruption of the last 20 years and to do it in an effective way, to demonstrate that, okay, we are picking a program that has shown its effectiveness. We are making it bigger. Say preschool is one or the trade adjustment assistance program we were discussing in another, just pick a couple of examples and do this. Really focus on those. And then hopefully it kind of like slowly restart enough legitimacy in the government that you can then raise the budget in ways that affect not just the very, very rich, but the merely rich. And then... uh, I mean, I think the question on the taxing the super rich, isn't it, is really not so much about whether it's got sufficient political support, but whether you've got a practical strategy in terms of people moving money out of the country. So around. in the US, I don't think that's really an issue. In the, the US is such a big country that people have nowhere to go. So in the US, that's kind of the, the work of uh, Saez and Zuckman in their new book, is that in the US, you suddenly you want to do shut the loophole to avoid pure evasion. But once you've done that, then people are not going to renounce their citizenship in the US because that's where things are happening. In Europe, it's a different issue because the countries in Europe are small enough and the rich are actually mobile enough that they could uh, happily move elsewhere. Emmanuel says has a nice uh, article on a football player showing that football players are very sensitive to top tax rates. They, they go play elsewhere when the taxes go up Denmark had a program that was kind of a little bit of tax dumping at the very top, encouraging high-income migrants to come, and it was successful. So within Europe, I think it would be difficult to do a lot at the very top without some coordination of the countries. But again, it's popular within Europe, so if they could get their act together, they could do it. Yeah, what I was going to say was I think it goes hand-in-hand, though, with a needing to have some kind of political discourse around citizenship. It isn't just actually about the state being able to spend that money in effective ways that people see is not being wasted or actually is changing material outcomes in in some ways. One of the things that I think that the left in the US needs perhaps to think more about is the way in which if you do things that aren't encouraging of of a narrative around citizenship and the importance of citizenship, that you actually make the taxing the very rich more difficult so you need some way of like re-legitimating the language of citizenship and its connection to taxation and its connection to what the state did and if you look at the period of where 
American state and the European state was doing more on the on the taxation front. It was strongly linked to a language of citizenship and a language of national citizenship at that. And it kind of common purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So in Europe, I think it would be possible. It's it's kind of uh, ironic to say that now, but uh, it, it it would be possible to create a common European purpose. There was one originally when Europe started. I think the way that we stumbled onto the current um, organization, political and economic organization of, of the European Union is not very conducive to any collaboration on taxation, both because of the, the rules on veto and things like that, and because the Germans have been so insistent on uh, fiscal discipline, which is together low taxes and uh, low benefits and no deficit. So I think this has been bad for Europe, and this has been bad for Europe as a construct, not just for European economy. Yeah, I mean, because citizenship in the European Union sense is tied to the freedom of movement, but it's not in any way tied to taxation. No, taxation is local, and there is no coordination of any form. What do you think it does to the taxation arguments to be living in an age of historically low interest rates and quantitative easing and so on, because governments have other roots and other temptations. Does that change when you think about the the tell as well as the show, how you construct these arguments? We are in relatively unprecedented times when it comes to some of the big fiscal questions. So I don't think it's a big issue. I think it goes back again to you know using any money that is being raised in a constructive way. If not, then there's going to be a huge backlash to it politically. Because there is a perception that quantitative easing the money that has been created has not been used in a constructive way. Yes, I don't know if people's understanding of economics is sophisticated enough to have an opinion on that. And I do think you could construct things that are much closer to to their understanding of what is happening in their region, etc. I mean, I think that what we're going to see, particularly in, in the United States, is actually is, is the left of the Democratic Party is increasingly going to embrace quantitative easing, but not of the form in which it happened after 2008. I think you can see the ways in which there's this interest in um, modern monetary theory and the idea that the Green New Deal can be paid for by quantitative um, easing. If the taxation thing becomes difficult in any way, there is now a fallback position, which is to say, OK, we'll have green QE. Yeah. And that will be the means by which this transformation will take place. And I think that the truth is, is that nobody really has got any idea about what the limits of borrowing are now, particularly for the United States, because you know the world prior to 2008 where financial markets acted as a quite sharp constraint at times, even sometimes for the United States, though more so for others, in what governments could borrow to finance the things that they wanted to spend money on, they don't exist in the same way, at least for those states outside the Eurozone, which are restricted by fiscal rules. Yeah, they don't exist till they do. Yeah, so it's kind of a little bit uh, above my pay grade to even think about what's going to happen in this uh, on the macro side. Just from a purely uh, pedestrian perspective, I do think that it lacks transparency and that that relates to your trust question that people might be worried that it's kind of something is swept under some rugs. So um, I think borrowing makes total sense in a in a crisis. 
you know, you don't want to go in a tailspin by compounding uh, a shock with a demand shock that's induced by the crisis itself. So a country like India, for example, which is going into a crisis now, should feel free to borrow to keep the social services afloat and uh, the life of the poorest afloat and, and not create a demand uh, cycle. But if you're thinking that, oh, well, we can borrow forever and forever and forever, there has to be some kind of transversality condition at the end of it, like you cannot do this forever. My kind of simple-minded view on that is that if you want to do more, it makes sense to, in a permanent way, if you want to always be spending more on education, not just as I'm investing for the future or I'm investing for the transition to a green economy. If a society we agree that there is always going to be a need to 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 have social expenditure to help people victims of shocks or to have good jobs that are paid with government money in the education sector, in elderly care sector or whatnot, then we should just have the fiscal revenue that matches it. So to finish, you mentioned India there, and we've been focusing on the politics and the economics of the West, I mean, of the more affluent democratic states of the world. A lot of your work has been on much poorer countries. And in the book, you talk quite a lot about that too. And you have some really interesting comparisons. So I love the discussion of universal basic income and then universal ultra basic income and some of the deep differences between how a policy like that might work depending on the kind of society. But also the thing that was so striking, and again, I think this goes against the conventional wisdom of orthodox economics, what the rich can learn from the poor, not just the other way around. So do you want to say just a little bit about in this context, when you see how some of these policies that we talk about as universal policies play out in much poorer places, what are the lessons, the wider lessons from that? So I think a, a nice moment in uh, in economics now is that uh, you know we can kind of look at some problems or at least import a way of looking at some problems from the perspective of developing countries. So the randomized control trial is an example of that. Kind of, it's a method that existed in in the West, but was kind of underused. That we adopted and developed mostly for use in poor countries, and then has come back to study the impact of various programs in the U.S., in Europe, and the U.K. And it's really big in rich countries now. In the book, we are trying to because we are coming from this is our bit, uh, the poor countries. We are trying to think about, you know, what can we learn? What is the same? What is different? One of the things that uh, we kept finding in the poor countries is uh, the complexity of the social welfare programs and their tendency to be uh, punitive is extremely damaging. So people, if they have to, in India, to apply to some widow's program, you have to jump through many hoops and therefore you kind of never really get around to uh, to doing it. And we looked at... Uh, various programs to reduce these barriers. And then you want to live with a ultra-basic income. We're proposing to leave just enough barrier to create a small ordeal that if you don't need it, you don't do it. Banerjee was involved in an experiment where they, they test this ordeal mechanism where you put the office a little bit further so people who don't really need it are more likely to drop out. And those kind of lessons, I think, can be applied to to think about our uh, entire welfare apparatus and the potential deleterious impact of having administrative barriers that will prevent people to take advantage of what they are entitled to. 
And at the same time, there is a key difference. And that's why for the Western country, we are not so much in favor of the UBI because we are thinking what people mostly want is dignity from their job and a sense of meaning that comes out of their job. And just a handout is not going to replace it. So that's our reason for why we would rather spend the money that is being raised through taxation on other things, on increasing education budgets and therefore having a lot of wages for people, on increasing retraining opportunities so people can find a, find another job. But um, for um, developing countries, it's different because for the very poorest, there is actually you know, the risk of actual starvation. <laughs> Or your kids not being able to, you know, to go to school because you cannot afford the tuition. Things that in the West we are thankfully kind of moved away from. So the idea of the universal ultra basic income is that make it very, very small, but it will assure people that should they need it, when they need it, they will never reach starvation. And I think this could be quite liberating for many people who would then feel like they can take some risk because if it goes wrong, they're not reducing their families to, to a disastrous uh, situation. So that's one of the difference. I, I highlighted the similarity with barriers to benefits. One difference is the meaning of, of a basic income in India versus the US or the UK. It's sometimes said that UBI is the left version of what a flat tax is for the right, which is this kind of illusion that there is a simple universal solution. I don't and think if, UBI is so left-wing. In the US, well, it's embraced by well, so Silicon left, Valley. It's also embraced by people who believe in a flat tax yes. as well. But there is there is the deep appeal of simplicity. Yes, yes. And, 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 and you're then, saying in some contexts that's for real, yes. but probably not for us. There is a lot of yes. value in simplicity in, in countries where the government apparatus is not that sophisticated. So India is operating thousands of different schemes some of them defunct, like giving a little budget for opium for uh, for the Afghan refugees of several decades ago. So that doesn't seem that it's a way to run a railway. And there, you know, rationalizing, simplifying would have huge benefits. For example, they have a food support system. A lot of the grain is lost, a lot of the grain is wasted, a lot of the grain is stolen. It seems that in today's day and age, there is so much gain to move to something simpler and replace the food benefit by a cash benefit that one would really have very strong argument for it not to be a good idea. But in developed country, there might be too much complexity, but there is also a reason why the complexity is there. And we, we are trying to do more than just giving money to people. We are trying to use this money in the most effective way possible. And uh, the civil servants can bear it, it can bear the complexity. So that is a, a difference also between the countries. We promised people last week that we would have a conversation without the words Boris Johnson, Brexit or general election appearing. And I think, looking at Helen and Esther, that we managed it. Esther's book, Good Economics for Hard Times, is out now. We will tweet a link to it and also to some of Esther's other work. There is a lot of it. It's all fascinating. Next week, we're going to be talking about Boris Johnson and the general election. We can't get away from it. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. That was really great. Oh, thank you.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.